listening to the Food Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and for the next half hour or so we're going to be talking about all things food and drink. Um, if you're listening to this programme and you didn't listen to last week's programme, some of it might not make too much sense because this is a second part of our uh, looking at sort of amazing food stats and what's going on in the world of food. So I would advise you to listen to the first programme. I will just recap a little bit though, Ollie. Um, so I'm joined by Ollie Lloyd, uh, founder of Great British Chefs. Um, we, you do this every year, don't you? Just just very yep. quickly, quick so synopsis. The, the, the quick synopsis is we're talking about the research that we conducted in January of 2019, which basically was a, a whole lot of research to understand how Britain's food habits have changed and attitudes have changed looking specifically the differences between foodies and non-foodies as a sort of marker we've done this since 2017 and the game is really to try and understand how things are changing and why they're changing yeah and if you're a brand or you're in food service you're in grocery or you're in retail you really do need to look at this stuff because it's actually telling us what is happening as opposed to people's guesses and perceptions this is really how people are thinking and what's happening yeah and, and i think ultimately you know where the opportunities lie oh, you know yeah. because if you're if you're trying yeah. to build a brand or a yeah. business stop you need making to... gin and have a look at this and see <laughs> well we can t- we can talk... i'm being flippant but, no, no, but, no, you know, but you have know... a look at what people you know what there's some massive gaps here in the market that people are not filling at the moment yeah and we, we, we should really you know start this program maybe we should have had gin you know because we then could have talked about <laughs> negronis and all yeah, sorts of stuff people usual. aren't drinking yeah but actually you know i think yeah the Gin is an opportunity, but it's certainly not the biggest. No. Um, we're joined again this week by um, Charlie Parker, who's an expert nutritionist. Hi, Charlie. Hi, good morning. Uh, it was fascinating last week, wasn't it? Um, we were talking about dairy in particular, gluten, uh, butchers, vegan, plant-based, um, loads and loads of, of, of things going on in people's mind. And, and I was surprised at some of the data. Yeah, I was too. And I think, you know, some of it quite positive, other things maybe a little bit worrying worrying. from a nutritional angle. Yeah. Now, this week, um, there is so much in this research, which you can download for free. Um, We're having trouble picking stuff out, but we're going to look at particular things um, this week. Um, Can we talk about shopping? Huge numbers of articles in the press about the difficulties in retail, whether it's food you know, or other types of retail. Um, and shopping, people going out and shopping, physically going out and shopping, um, it's completely transformed the high street, hasn't it? And, and things are very different. This applies to food as well, doesn't it, Ollie? Um, in that, um, you know, people still, even in sort of Tesco's or whatever, still have to provide a little bit of theatre, a little bit of experience um, in order to really draw their customers in. Totally. I mean, I think what's amazing is if you wind back... 10 to 15 years in the world of grocery, you know, there wasn't a Cardo, there wasn't online shopping. It's true. Yeah. There wasn't really Aldi or Lidl. So it was it was Sainsbury's, It was Sainsbury's. I mean, the, the, the story was Sainsbury's, Tesco's, Asda, Asda Morrison. Morrison's. The big probably. threat was, oh my God, this American retailer called Walmart have bought this thing called Asda. Asda, yeah, that, that was, was the, the threat. That was the big threat. Yeah. And now look at where we are today. And it's, the, I mean, you know, look, you know, Charlie, you worked in the world of retail, mm. you know, 
it's it's you know I mean it's in a minor well it's going through massive change is it not yeah massive massive change uh, you, you used to work for Sainsbury's and and Marks and Spencer's as a, as a nutritionist and, and I know now you've you've been running your business as a consultant for three years are you sort of secretly pleased that you've left the retail world yeah a little bit <laughs> <laughs> it's I tough. think it's, it's a tough. really tough environment yeah. to be in yeah really tough and and you know, I mean, it's always been a very dynamic environment and that's what I loved about it. But right now, <laughs> it's, quite, it's, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. So let's have a look at the actual figures. Now, Ollie, uh, one of the questions that you ask in your research is which of the following retailers do you shop at regularly? And just to recap from last week, we've got three types of, of people that we ask this question for. Nationally, uh, so people who don't particularly think that their food is it's just something that they you know have to eat um then we've got what i would call ultra foodies people who it's it, it sort of their lens of life is actually look through <laughs> through food um, and then these occasional foodies which tend to be more weekend foodies mm. so we've got three different types of okay. people here um so in terms of of retailers where are people shopping regularly well, at the moment i suppose the starting point for this is that when you start to talk about foodies mm you know, and where they shop. You know, one sort of has this idea of someone with a cloth bag in Islington wandering around between farmer's markets and delicatessens, right? Yeah, maybe popping into Waitrose occasionally. Yeah, yeah. and and that's just completely not what you should be thinking about. Really? Yeah, you need to start at the point, which is, in the end, 29% of the UK is foodie, and the UK shops at Tesco's. I mean, that's, you know, whether we like it or not, 51% of the UK claims to shop at Tesco's regularly. So that's half of the nation going to Tesco's at some point, probably. No, no, that's regularly. During, oh, regularly. You're at 90% oh, okay. if you do regularly occasionally. Okay. And basically, you know, everyone so half goes... half the population goes into Tesco's. Regularly. And okay. basically, the population goes into Tesco's. Yeah. You know, so... That so depresses me a bit. Well, no, you see, I don't think it should depress oh, you. I, I think like Tesco's. No, but I think, I think what one has to... So I think one has to take the value judgments out of this. And so it's, yeah, from, from, from a brand point of view. Personal no, opinion. Agreed, yeah. agreed. But from a brand point of view, one has to, and the point I think of this conversation, you know, we want to have now is, you know, you can't be, you can't judge Tesco's. Like the UK shops at Tesco's, if you want to build a successful business, you basically, in need the world of food, you have to win in Tesco's. If you're not going to win in Tesco's, you need a very coherent strategy why Tesco's yeah. isn't part of your strategy. So what you're saying is that because half the nation regularly shops at Tesco, even if there was 2% foodies that go into Tesco, because of the sheer volume of that, that's a massive volume is what you're saying. But actually it isn't 2%, is it, of, of foodies that go into, into Tesco's? Well, so if you walk into Tesco's, one in three people you meet will be a foodie. Right. So, you know, but that's kind of roughly in line with the UK population. Yeah. You know, so Tesco's yeah. have not managed to turn off, obviously they're going to turn off what I'll call people like yourself. So just following you know, the, 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 they're, they're on the natural, natural they're state natural. of things. They're yeah. natural. Okay. Right. But I think the other point is that because these are foodies and their life is driven by the world of food, they will go into Tesco's to pick up certain things. And, you know, actually I think that some of the produce of Tesco Finest is bloody good. Mm. And actually if you do pick up some of that stuff and... You know, I know I shop, but there's a Tesco local around the corner from me, and I do pick up certain things from there. Yeah. I don't think, you know, I'll, you know I'm, cross, I'm crossing with other stuff. But, you know, really the only retailer that is truly foodie, the only retailer that over-indexes on foodies, is Waitrose. But Waitrose doesn't have as much reach as Tesco's. So in Waitrose, you're saying that 40, 47% of shoppers, just under half of Waitrose shoppers, are foodie. Yeah. And, and a third are foodie in Tesco. However... 
if you were to look at numbers of people, then then the foodies that go into Tesco's is huge. Correct. Hugely because, outweighs. Because essentially, you're, what you're saying is, you know, if you take two populations, you've got 50% of the population and 30% of that 50% are foodies, whereas with Waitrose, only 13% of the population shop regularly, but a higher number are mm. foodies. So in the end, there are more foodies at Tesco's. But if you want an in, if you're if you're if you're trying to target an intensity of foodies, Waitrose is the only retailer that the where national that, big, that, retail. that big retailer that over indexes significantly on, on foodies. Okay, so how is that resonating in terms of the speciality sector? So we haven't got our lovely Holly Shackleton here today, editor of Speciality Food. But when you're looking at delis and farmer shops and stuff like that, what 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 if and you know cheesemongers? What effect is that having? So one of the things I'm always interested by is, you know, when when I sort of go back to the beginning of my marketing career, people would say, I'm targeting someone who's, you know, this gender, this age, and are this socio-demographic. And what's so clear from this research is that it's just totally pointless. (laughs) And, and, you know, so if you take delis as a really good example, you know, only 10% of the UK claim to regularly shop at a deli. That number increases to a whopping 11% amongst (laughs) ABs. So it's like, well, you know, all that tells you is is that what drives people to a deli is not their socio-demographic makeup. So it's, that's not about price then is what we're sort of saying, I think. So AB as a marketing classification of people who are very wealthy and incredibly well-educated. Uh, uh, and have managerial jobs. And managerial and, jobs, you know, all that sort of stuff. Old, it's actually quite an old-fashioned marketing yeah. um, way of segmenting the UK hasn't actually been replaced by anything else any better that no. I can recall. So so um so that's really interesting. <laughs> so what we're saying is that delis, farm shops or whatever, you know, you are not attracting a certain type of people from society. It's people who are interested in food no matter what and from where they come from and they will go into the local deli for that well, reason. Because in the end, if you go into a deli you are going in there because you want a certain type of food. And I think, you know, we were talking last week about different grains and, and, and more specialist stuff. You know, you go in there because of the food that's on offer. And let's be clear, delis are more expensive than Tesco's. Oh, yeah. That goes without saying. So it will attract the premium foodie, certainly. And therefore, if you looked at the, that sub-segment of mm-hmm. foodies, yes, a more affluent foodie is going to um, to a deli. And certainly, you know, with the Great British Chef's audience, for example, will over-index in this area, even versus a foodie. But fundamentally, people who go to delis are foodies, yeah. and therefore you need to and target them. it doesn't matter them. what section of society they're from, they just, they just love food. And, and, and I suppose the reason for me, me drawing this out is it means that delis that think they can get away with expensive things that aren't quality, you can't. Mm. You know, you need to be offering a product mm. that delivers at that price you're charging. And that's, that's, you know, I think, you know, there are a lot of delis over the years, I think, that would sell kind of like, you know, unknown kind of brands that were sort of interesting. Edgy. Yeah, but not, but actually just really faux brands. And actually, you know, you really need quality. You need to deliver quality there. And specialism. And what about, we talked about butchers last week. What about cheesemongers, especially cheese shops? How are they doing? Well, I mean, again, they're very small. I mean, only 6% of the UK claims to regularly shop in a cheesemonger. And that increases to 17% amongst community foodies. I mean, again, we were talking about the dairy reduction last week. We're talking about how actually when you look at what people are trying to reduce, you know, milk's number one, I think butter's two and cheese is three. So actually cheese is not, you know, is is in that sort of bad dairy space on some level. And actually, I think what's really interesting is I think, you know, I think the the food, the the cheese you can get in a cheesemonger is just completely different from what you can get in a retailer. Oh, spy, hundred. 
I mean, I just don't even know how to explain it. Well, there are some and cheese. The prob- I mean, I, there the problem are some with that cheese. is that the supermarkets can't keep cheese properly. That's that's the problem because it's, because it's volume, and so it's all refrigerated and it's all put in, you know, plastic, plastic and, and it ruins it ruins it. If you go into somewhere like Neil's Yard Dairy, um, you know, or uh, La Fromagerie in in London, or any of the other lovely cheese shops around the country, they know how to keep cheese. They know how to. You know, make sure it's moist. I know. It, it, I mean, in Neil's Yard Dairy, they will wrap and unwrap the cheese every night. You know, they don't. They don't put it in plastic. They put it to bed. And they do. They actually do put it to bed. And therefore, of course, it tastes different, even from the same farm that they've yeah. got the cheese from, because because supermarkets can't do it. And the taste difference is phenomenal. Yeah. But how many cheese shops are there? Not many. But I, but I think what's interesting, and this is where you know we're talking about you know from a dieting or dietary perspective. Actually, you know, one of the opportunities for speciality is to try and cater to some of those more nuanced spaces. So you were talking last week, Charlie, about, you know, if you're reducing gluten and wheat, you know, you need to look to alternative grains. And actually, how good are retailers at stocking those alternative grains? Not that great. There's an opportunity for the independent sector there, isn't there? Yeah, and, you know, the ancient grains are having a bit of a resurgence and it's it's injecting that kind of innovation um, that the foodies want. Mm. Yeah, go on, give me a few, because we, we, we've been doing some work with Dove's Farm on, on ancient grains. There's some, they're ones I've never really heard of. Well, I, I do my own bread now, because you had a go at me quite a lot last yeah. year. Admittedly, it's a bread maker. I've been buying some amazing flowers, like, uh, different types of flowers. Like amaranth? Really different, yeah, interesting. Some of them are from Dove, actually. What's and the, it's like I've been, I've been chucking them in and I'm going, oh, my, that's amazing. The flavour the colour is extraordinary. Yeah. As well, the colours. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. So what are some of the other ones? So. I can't even oh, I can't remember mine. There's, there's one that begins with a C that I that is very particular that I can't remember the name of. But there's a whole load of, of actually, you know, and it's quite interesting because mm. I think one of the things that has I'm going to say has been bred out of flour in, in 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 the kind of the really mass market brands is any form of flavour. You know, the guys back at work have been cooking some. I, I want to say coriander or something like that, but it's. I mean, it was phenomenally flavoursome, yeah, and they used right. it as a base for a chocolate tart, and you're just like, oh my word, that's really really right. different. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think that's one of the spaces that they've got to sort of um, embrace yeah. and think about. Absolutely. So, so if we move on from there, then, so, so we've got we've we're got moving the, to your favourite retail, huh? the mainstream supermarkets, if I can call them that. We've got the independent sector. Now, now, what about the world of of discounters? Uh, by which I think you mostly mean Aldi and Lidl. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Mostly. I wasn't referring to Harrods. I think I think we, we can't really refer to them as a. I've only been to Harrods once in the last year. What so was you buy there? Case. It's that. It's that um, that beef fat? dripping, it's beef amazing. dripping, yeah. 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 Um, uh, Whelan's uh, beef dripping. Um, so the, there is definitely Cantar uh, um, data, isn't there? Which, which is this sales data, which yep. is different from yours. Um, wh- wh- what's that been saying? So um, what's amazing is, is if you look at the last three years, right? Audi has just continued. It's basically the only retailer that's grown, right? Audi and Little. So if you do the charts, and you can see they're very clearly. You look back in sixteen to today. Everyone has gone backwards, apart from Audi and Lidl. And by everyone, you mean Sainsbury's Tesco? Sainsbury's Tesco is waitress. I mean, Ricardo's one percent of the grocery market. We we give a lot of airtime to them, but they're one percent of the grocery Mm. market. And actually, you know, what's extraordinary is if you think about this, is that Audi and Lidl now control fifteen percent of the grocery market. Fifteen percent. Fifteen percent. Now that that was with the big retailers a few years ago. That is Mm. an absolute. You know, they've just walked in and taken 15% of the grocery market. And I think... It's in any sector, any corporate sector, whether it was manufacturing, engineering, service, that would be seismic, wouldn't it? And it is. Yeah, it it is. has been, yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, and you're talking about a twenty-nine billion pound market, right? If they've taken fifteen percent of that, that's really quite problematic because it's not like the other guys have, in, you know, found that fifteen percent by selling more expensive tomatoes or getting. You know, you think about you think about Aldi and Little on one side, you think about Amazon on the other, you think about the online revolution in another world, the move towards. I mean, this world is in total change. Mm. And I think, you know, look, I don't think anything I've just said is new. But, you know, looking at these stats again, you go, oh, God, it is, it's big. So so why are people going to Aldi and Little? Uh, much is made of the middle class, in inverted commas, people who go in uh, because there's some, I don't know, amazing Palmer ham that's cheap or something. Um, it, it's not it's not just about that, is it? That's, that's rather it's, simplistic. But it's a good starting point, actually. I think, right. I think, I think part of it has been, I think when you talk about discounters people like pound shops it's like that's what you think about discounters like Mm. it's a dirty word you know tesco spent years creating the finest brand in order to undiscounter it itself you know because it was always the great discounter really Mm. tesco basics yeah basics and you know you know every you know every little helps all that kind of communication that was what tesco's was built on and then aldi little come along as this sort of you know dirty discounter and it what is what is the case is they are not a discounter they're just offering extraordinary value and people are seeing value in it do you shop in aldi and little just looking at you charlie not really but that's mainly because of proximity right geography yeah geography and i online shop (laughs) i live in a a little village uh, near the sea i can see the sea from my house which is lovely we have a big can't remember which one it is Aldi, little one of them. I don't know. I don't even take your nose. It's massive. It's the biggest supermarket in the village, and it's right in the middle of the high street. I can't go in. I just can't go in there. Do you go in? Uh, so I. So that one has just opened up up Holloway Road, and I'm, I really want to go because I don't shop there. And it's interesting, you know. I was talking to someone the other day, and they said, "Oh, you know, I go to Aldi Little to pick up my olive oil." <laughs> and I was like, "No, I was like, actually, that's but, quite interesting, isn't I mean, it?" I have been. I have been in it once. Um, and what do you buy? A Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> because I just, I hate the atmosphere. I just I go in, and for me, shopping is about a bit of an experience. I love looking at food, mm. and 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 you know, even though I don't buy something, I just like seeing what's new and going around. And I, I get a lot of pleasure out of buying food. I don't find it a you know, a chore or anything. I know lots of people do. And, of course, my family's left home now, so I have a bit more time. I'm not rushing in and rushing out. I go in there, it just makes me feel so depressed. Like, I just hate the whole atmosphere of it. But the, interesting, but the interesting thing is, isn't it, you know, we had um, the guys from Iceland on last mm. year, which was really interesting because we had this whole conversation and um, they brought along their mince pies, yes. which were great. They were lovely. They were great and they were palm oil-free and there was a whole kind of narrative around around what was going on there. And I think, you know, I think there's times when, you know, let's be clear, you know, you and I are at the sort of foodie end of foodies, yeah, right? That. And we admit that. Yeah. But I think what's interesting is when you look at the data, actually, the people who are shopping at Aldi, so 31% of the UK claim to regularly shop at Aldi, but that increases to 36% amongst committed foodies. And that is the group, probably from a profitability perspective, that are really important because they're going in, they're grabbing a five litre thing of olive oil or a side of Parma ham or a side of salmon or something kind of, you know, funky, extraordinary, I'm going to call it treaty without being super expensive. Yeah. And, you know, look, I love I love buying salmon from Foreman and Field who are, you know, a place of origin, you know, that's probably the best salmon I can get. 
But I'm not, that's an occasional thing. If I could go along there and pick up an amazing half side of salmon for a tenner, you kind of go, yeah, let's, you know, and it's that mindset I think you're in. And I think for brands and for businesses, that is taking money out of the market because for artisanal producers, for... But I've had people who bring, who've said, oh, I'm coming around to your house, I'm bringing this Palmer ham. And they think it's funny because I'm eating it and they go, oh, that's from Lidl or Aldi or whatever. It's, in my personal opinion, it's not great. It's not great. It's not great Palmer ham. It oh, it's not. No, not, not I'm, when I go to no. you know, not when I go to Brindisi, and it's absolutely stunning. I admit, it's three times the price. But it, you know, as a proper foodie who absolutely adores great food, that isn't great food. It's it's better than you can get in a supermarket generally, but you know, it's not up there. No, it, it's look, not up there. if you compare the Cannon and Cannons, we had the guys from oh, Cannon and Cannon the other day. It was fabulous, stunning, yeah. fabulous salamis and meats. No, you know, if you're you getting, get you're not going to get that there. But I don't think you're going there for what I'm going to call super quality. You're going there for, I'm going to call it a cheap thrill. Slightly mm. better than normal. It's a cheap thrill. Yeah. And, you know, you're like, look how cool it is. I've just picked up a half a, you know, the irony, you know, it, it's, I, I mean, I spent a lot of time in America working for Unilever and we used to do a lot of time in retail and we'd go around to a place like Costco. You'd talk to people and they're like, I just picked up, you know, like X kilograms of, they used to call it filet, you know, they flaming yawn, as I used to yeah. pronounce it, filet mignon, flaming yawn, as I called it. And, uh, you know, they would get these just hunks of meat. And it was like, it was about, it was like, it was a, it's a caveman mentality, I swear. You'd go there, you'd hit something over the head, you'd bring it home <laughs> over your back. And that is a little bit of the Aldi and Little mentality yeah. for foodies. They're going in with their club, they're smacking something over the head. Throwing it over their back could be a Christmas tree, could be five years old, and you're kind of happy with it. A little yeah. bit of a brag, foodie brag. It is. There is brag value. <laughs> yeah. But I went and got that Christmas tree. It was seventeen pound fifty, um, and it had all fallen apart by Boxing Day. It was awful. Well, it was perfect. It lasted just long enough. Just <laughs> <laughs> getting the Hoover out, hoovering all the needles like every yeah. five minutes because it just all fell off. Anyway, so so that's going to keep going, isn't it? That's not going away. Yeah. Yeah. But but I think it does pose a real threat to brands because I think it, it poses a threat to brands and retailers and producers and everyone else because actually you need to acknowledge that, you know, I don't, no one knows what the economy is going at the moment, globally, mm. the UK, etc. We all only have one wallet and we all have to choose carefully. And the fact that there are, there are you know, I'm, and I, I totally agree with what you're saying, Sue, it's not at the quality level of artisanal. But, but the it's question better is, than the norm. But if it's better than the norm, then yeah. that poses a threat. And it does also mean that artisanal can't shortcut. In the end, if you... Yeah, it's got to be It's got to keep being special. It's got to keep yeah. came, paying attention to, you know, animal welfare, processing, removing things that are, that are nasty. It's constantly... I think, you know, the great thing about Aldi and Little is it does keep the artisanals honest and it's forcing out the quality it's of a really the other good ones, point. which is quite interesting. That's a really, really good point. Mm. Can I move on now to recipe selection? Now, this is something that I know that you're not quite believing, Ollie, so I just want to ask uh, Charlie about this. When we're talking uh, to, let's say, committed foodies, so this is right up the end of people who probably know quite a lot about food. It's very, very important to them every single day. Uh, the question was, what are the key factors when choosing a recipe to make during the week? Committee foodies say the most important thing for them is it's got to be healthy. Do you agree? Do you think that they're... Well, I mean, that's, I mean, we're talking about coming home claiming. on a Monday. You, you know, you're really busy. There's not much in... The, but they're saying doesn't matter. It's It doesn't... It can be... Take me ages to cook. It can do all sorts of stuff. Health for me I don't, is that, number one. Actually, thing. it doesn't surprise me because I've seen similar stats um, 
elsewhere about what people are claiming to do. And I think here health doesn't necessarily mean it's nutritionally balanced and, you know, got all the right quantity of the right things. It could be that it's got three portions of vegging. It's okay. really fresh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I think it's it's how people, what people perceive health to be. It's such a massive yeah. topic and everyone has a different perception. What do you think is going on there? Ollie? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think this it's, it's a really interesting... It's a really interesting word to use where food is concerned because if you go back 10 years or so, into about, if I say, I'm going to serve you a really healthy meal, we'd all be like, oh God, what are you going to do? That's <laughs> funny you know, if it's you. And actually, no, but, no, but, it, but, but in some ways, health was synonymous with boredom and um, lack of anything interesting. And actually, I think what's changed in some ways is if I said to you, I'm going to serve you, you know, a beautiful plate of summer tomatoes, you know, with perfect olive oil and, you know, basil on top and a sprinkling of salt you'll be just like, a little touch awesome. of burrata that was yeah. freezing cold on yeah. top of that oh. and you know that's that's a perfect you know or, or you know a beautiful sourdough right with a slice of great you know farmhouse cheese you know actually the fact of the matter is that health is not boring mm-hmm. actually healthy i think talks about a sense of, of vibrancy and taste and clean, cleanliness i remember one of my favorite quotes ever from a from a michelin star chef was like, if someone said to him what is it that you want at the end, your clients to feel at the end of the meal? And he said, I want a couple to be able to go home and make love. <laughs> and and he was talking about the idea that because actually... Because it was sensuous it was and sensuous, it was enjoyable. And you didn't feel like you'd just eaten 17 litres. And of, it created a conversation. And, and you didn't you feel overwhelmed and like, yeah. ooh, you know, mm. like some of those older meals, you kind of... <laughs> Wobble home. He was, he was a hilarious chef. And he wore these kind of 70s porn star yeah. glasses and he, he he was amazing, got very upset when he didn't win the competition he was entering in. But what I loved about that comment was actually that, you know, I think there was a time when you finished a meal... They can barely move. Well, and actually, that's success. <laughs> yeah, unless oh. you're stuff. Yeah, so it's like the um, it, it's the Monty Python, yeah. you know, thing. You exactly know. the wafer thin. Yes, would you like a final after eight mincer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he doesn't want that to happen. And, and I and I think that's what's interesting in some ways, which is when you ask a foodie, "What do you want from a meal?" You you want to feel great. Yeah. And actually, it's really it's a really interesting change for me, which is, I think actually, the sort of the I'm going to be unfair here, but that sort of American like you know. Here you go. Here's like all you know the all you can eat thing that I know I used to go to when I was sort of sixteen years old. It just doesn't make sense anymore. Mm. You want to feel good at the end of a meal, so I think healthy is synonymous with, you know, a flavour profile. I think it's synonymous with the type of ingredients. It's synonymous with speed. Do you, you think know? it's also cooking from scratch, Charlie? Do you think that's part? yeah? I think a lot of people a lot, would a lot of people's that. heads. That, yeah, that's definitely. The less processed. Um, it is mm. the, the healthier it is. So committee, committed food is, so this is during the week, presumably people are a little bit time poor, all, all sorts of things. Committed food is a saying, the key factors when choosing a recipe when they get home is 46% are saying it's healthy, 44% enjoyable to cook, 43% flavoursome. So all of those things are important to, yeah. to, to a foodie. When we get to a non-foodie, um, uh, then they're saying that 57% of them are saying it's got to be easy to cook, by which I think they mean, um, oh, we've got, yes, 47% as well, quick to cook. So it's got to be easy and quick. So I'm not engaged with this subject. Just get me in and out. Yeah. You know, quick, mm. easy, cheap. It's, you know, it's it's a little bit like, you know, if you don't care about clothes, you're like, you don't, I, do want, you? <laughs> I want them to fit. <laughs> I used to provide children. Thank God you're on radio. <laughs> you know, That's all I say. It's, I, I, I actually I love clothes in their own way, but but no, but, but actually I I you know for me, you know with clothes, 
you know, they, they have certain it's functional function. requirements. Yeah. And, and this is functional in a way, because as you say, the third thing is 44% has got to be affordable. So quick, easy, affordable is what is going through somebody's head. Presumably, if they're a non-foodie, because they've got so many other things going on, it's like, I need to get in of here, out of here, with the least mess. It's got to be easy, it's got to be quick, and and all the family's happy. Well, you're yeah. taking no, you're taking no pleasure, so that doesn't mean it tastes bad. No, no, no. You know, which is why it's, it's, it's you've, you've got to, you know. But but actually, the point is that you know, actually, foodies and non-foodies could eat the same meal, but their requirements of getting to that destination are different. So, actually, if that meal was quick, easy and affordable, a non-foodie would be happy. If you could give a foodie something that was also healthy, full of flavour and enjoyable to pair, so give them space to, to mess around, then both could enjoy the same destination. But the point is to motivate someone to take that journey, you've got to pull different levers. Mm-hmm. And that's the point, I think, for, for all of us, which is that you know, if you're a brand and you're trying to inspire people to cook and create something... You've got to understand the levers and the buttons to press mm. to inspire them to that. And if you say, here is a great dish, it's quick, easy and cheap, they're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but actually, that's great to the non-foodie, but to the foodie, I want to know that it's enjoyable to cook and there's pleasure yeah. in it. And there's space for creativity because it's part of how people define themselves. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to the weekend, asking exactly the same question, but it's the weekend, the non-foodie is again saying it's got to be easy to cook and affordable. But actually there, they're saying it's got to be flavoursome. And it feels to me like, I don't know if you think this, Charlie, but it feels to me like then it's, I want this to be good now, because we, probably because we've got a little bit more time, so flavoursome suddenly becomes important, and, and the quick to cook isn't up there. Yeah, no. prepared to spend a little bit more time, maybe a little bit more indulgent. But it's still got to be easy. Yeah, health is, is less of a priority yeah. at the weekend as it, it would be during the week the debit credit well if you go back to the oxo ads right which i think is kind of you know mm-hmm. you take this you know look you know all countries are built and psyches are built on the stories we tell and, and the stories we watch on television on some level if you take those ads you know as this idea of the family around the table and the smell and the flavor of that now it was a cheat right you just used a cube and it was like oxo you know gravy but it was flavorsome and actually you know you do you know if you are feeding a family you know, you've got through the week. Like everyone knows, we were all joking earlier about the dramas of, of, of being a parent. Um, yeah. And actually, you know, you want to also get gratification. And it is important. But but it's different for foodie. It's mm. not, it, it, you know, one level for a non-foodie. Yeah, it is a, it's sort of a bisto gravy moment. But for sure. a foodie, actually that, and this is the, the thing I think that so many brands have missed over the years, is that actually the process and the enjoyment of cooking, take that away from me. And I don't care if you get me to the same destination. Yeah. And and in your experience, Charlie, um, obviously you've worked for Sainsbury's, Mots and Spence and all sorts of other people. And I know, I know you've sort of, you know, been working for yourself in the last three years. But do you think that people are cooking more healthily at home from a nutritional aspect now? Or has it just not changed as far as you're concerned? I, I, know, I, I know we're not looking at data here. It's yeah, just your, I your think opinion. people would claim they are. And I think there's been quite a lot of demonisation of processed food and that's not healthy, which of course isn't necessarily true at all um so and actually if you look in the retailers and look at how many more ranges there are that are sort of like the kits that make you feel like you're cooking from scratch but yeah not really because it's all portioned out for you yeah and and you look at the um the popularity of the online meal kits the um the hello fresh and and the like um yeah i think probably more people are there is more interest in people doing a bit more cooking from scratch. And nationally, are we sort of getting healthier? 
in terms of... No, sadly. <laughs> sadly, we're not. No. Why is it... Is that because it's just so complicated to work it out? And, and, and we've all got these different fads, so people go, oh, I'll eat less gluten and I'll, I'll, I'll eat less dairy and that makes me healthier. And I, but actually... You know, we, we do live in a obesogenic vi- vi- environment yeah. where it's incredibly difficult to go anywhere without being tempted all the time, all day long. Yeah, it's it's not easy um, because of the environment we live in, the um, the way that we run our daily lives and we do way less physical activity than, than we need to be. So sadly, we're not getting any healthier and you know some of these trends that we're talking about you know people are dipping in and out of but their overall diet you know is not looking as as healthy as it should be because so much stuff's available i mean but what's so interesting hard to avoid any of it as well is, you, you know you can you gotta have a cast iron you know resolve mm. to actually get through some of this stuff if you if you genuinely and are trying really hard to lose weight or be healthy wow it's 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 never been so hard, got, has it? It's it. never been so yeah. hard. But I also think there is there is a story which is that this is not this is completely not equal. And I think that you know if I look at you know the foodie out there, the level of kind of understanding about what they should be eating is very different to other population yeah. parts of the population. Totally. And I think what's interesting is when you t- translate that into... Well, in a good way, do you mean? In a good way. Okay. But I, but I translate also into the way that, you know, if I look at the kind of the, the militant wing of, of children's feeding, you know, mm. it's kind of like, you know, if I, then I, I go back to what I was fed, you know, we weren't worried about refined sugar. We weren't worried about, you know, as a child being brought up about, you know, sweet Listen, here, up sweet in the 70s, there. You should see what people used to eat yeah. then. I mean, I mean exactly. appalling. So, no, I know. Really. So, so, I mean, I think it's... I think it's but we didn't used to eat as much. No, and it wasn't volume, as available. And there's, there's, there's I you think. know, it's. Mm. I I think I think my, I'm, what I always worry about is when you take statements like national, because actually, you know, I was reading a piece of research the other day about globally where there was an opportunity, and it was like globally there's an opportunity around breakfast. It's like, <laughs> what does that what, mean? What, what exactly? You know, exactly. Yeah. So when you when you do deal with sixty million people, you end up with the fact that we all wake up and we all go to sleep. Well, if we try to go to sleep, yeah. we all try and wake up. You know, but, but, you know, you really have some pretty bland insights. And I think actually that's the trick here, which is I think for people and brands and, and consumers who are trying to engage in the world of food, actually you need to be really clear on who you're talking to. But, Charlie, there is an opportunity to try and help people in terms of understanding nutrition better. There's too many claims. Oh, massive, that are, that are, I mean, you, uh, uh, you and me have is, spoken before quite a lot. Yeah. And it's like you've seen stuff on packets and you go, they can't say that. They can't say that. And yet they have. You know. Do you know, it, it's such a, uh, a noisy space. It's a bit of a jungle when it comes to nutrition. And, and now with social media, it's just made it so much worse because everyone's an expert in nutrition. So like Al Gwyneth, for example. Yeah. And and there are loads of influencers out there that have a really strong voice and sadly not the knowledge um, that sits behind it. Oh, frightening. I'm going to change the subject now. Let's uh, talk about international into Kardashian country. Um, so international cuisine. Uh, we like to say that we, we, we say this quite often on the programme that we're, uh, you know, culinary magpies in the UK. We, because of our history, we, we've had many, many influences part of the reason why I really like um, I don't live in London but coming into London regularly and, and some of our other great cities across the UK is I personally really do like the international 
sort of um, flavour that we have in in all our cities and the influences and different cultures and, and all sorts of other things. That's really translated to our food. Now, we think that we are... I like to think that we're probably across the world, you know, the most experienced and and um, lovers of all things international in terms of food. Well, there's a stunning statement in your research, which I sort of can't believe. It's sad, isn't it? And it says 47% of Britain's, British people don't cook any of the 12 international cuisines surveyed at home regularly. So, so I'm guessing it might mean that they eat it out... Yes. Possibly. So they might go for Indian yes. ale or something like that. I but am including Italian as well. Cook it at home. Yeah. So can you just go through those figures? I just can't. So, so, so what that's really saying is that half of non foodies, to put it simply, so 70% of the UK, so half that, so 35% of the UK, right? So we're talking of tens of millions of people. Tens of millions. Do not cook any international food. And international regularly. food means. So we've put everything, I mean, so French, Italian. <laughs> You know, Chinese, Indian. Yeah, and then we put the random ones in, like Korean, Vietnamese, yeah. Thai, you know. So, so Italian, we're talking about pasta? Well, no, so, no, so here's the, here's the Pizza, complexity. So, here's, so this is the only reason why you've got to handle this question with, okay. with confusion. Is people might say the spaghetti bolognese is not Italian. The Italians might say spaghetti bolognese is not Italian. <laughs> yeah. uh, or our, att- our attempts at lasagna is not Italian. So there's a kind of thing which is what is, you know, what's being put in there. Is chicken tikka masala... Indian. You know, there's, there, there are debates okay. about this. So, so I think you've got to remember that, you know, there is a broad spectrum of what British is, but they're not doing anything that in their own mind is international. So does regular. that mean that they actually are cooking international dishes? It's just that because they cook them so often, they don't think they're international. Well, I think, you know, I think they know. They, or are they genuinely? I think on BBC Good Food, the most popular recipe they have on that site is chili con carne. Hmm. And but is, is somebody cooking that at home thinking, oh, that's British? Yeah, I th- well, I, mm, I obviously, think that's what And that's, happening. again, one of the reasons we do this research is it unlocks kind of crazy things we've then got to go into again. To understand. Yeah. And yeah. this, for me, is one of those ones where you go, wow. But I think the, 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 the positive side of this is that actually if you go into the foodie universe, you know, the reality is, is that 50% of, of, food, of committed foodies are cooking at least three international cuisines regularly. But that might be because they recognise those things as being international. But also they're probably going into the more marginal things. So I would not say that... So if I'm cooking a five-hour lamb ragu from Francesco Mazzai with Nduya on the side, that is an Italian dish. So I'm just going to give you a bit of background here, Charlie. Mm. That's the world that Ollie lives in. I don't live in that world. Do you know, it's actually, do you know, I have to say... He's actually, like, what are you going on about? No, but no, um, actually, if you want to make a really good, if you want to make a really good ragu, yeah. it's five hours. Yeah, I, I, that's what I would do. Yeah, but, but, but actually, but I think if you're doing, if you're doing a five-hour ragu, I think that's an Italian dish. If yeah. you're doing a 30-minute bolognese, I think that's a British dish. So, so what I'm trying to what I'm trying to say slightly well, is, is that, thirty minutes is horrible. Well, of course mm. it is. I know, but but what I'm trying to say is that so 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 this might be slightly things which is, you know, actually, you know, the effort of doing an international dish, doing something from scratch. But, but ragu isn't an effort. Is you no, to understand how, how it works? So basically, I just put it on, leave yeah. it on the top of the cooker, and I'll go faff around all day. Yeah. I hardly touch and it, then it's and then it's beautiful. Phenomenal. It's it's amazing. But I haven't done anything with it. If you know what I mean, I've just left it on. There. You've thought it's about great. it, and you've got excited yeah. by the smell that fills the house. <laughs> no, but I mean, what's, but what's interesting? So, if you mm. dig into the international cuisines, and I find this really, you know, interesting, is that the number one international cuisine for us is Italian. 
right? So 37% yeah. of the UK claims to cook Italian food regularly, followed by Indian, mm. right? What's interesting is poor old France is, is actually only 10% of the UK claims to cook mm, French food regularly. Just slightly above Thai. Yeah. But I think... But what, I, again, what would somebody... What would you think of as French, Charlie? I'm thinking like beef bourguignon, maybe. Yeah, that's Cocavan. Cocavan, trying to think. Snails. <laughs> what else would you? You live in Kent. There's lots of wandering around. What else would you? What would be French? Well, so you, you, various duck, you know, duck à la roche. You know? I mean, but this is what's really interesting. Is I, yeah. I had a conversation with a French brand a while ago, and I'm just like, French food is really in trouble. And they're like, why? Why do you say that? Why do you say? That? And if you step back from the conversation we had last week, like. What does French food rely upon a lot of? Dairy. Yeah. A lot of cream. Very rich. Very rich. Mm, yeah. It is absolutely. Then you think, what's the number one driver that foodies look for? Healthy. Yeah. Right? There's yeah. nothing about French food yeah. for me. French food is, you know, at the end of it, you feel like you need to lie down. Yeah. Which is great if you've got a box set and, and a bottle of wine. I'm, I'm not going to try and remember that phrase we had <laughs> in the other week of what the idea was. Is it was a new a concept that was growing in Finland, which means sitting in your underpants and drinking a bottle of wine and watching a box set. Oh, is that yeah. huggy? huggy? No, it's no, not. No, that, no, that's, it's, that's, it's, it's, there's a subsection it's, it's of like that. The, oh, right. the word is about 17 letters long. Okay. And, and even um, a, a Scandinavian who was with us it. couldn't pronounce it. So she's like, sorry to my Finnish friends. Yeah. So, but, but I think you know what's interesting is that French food just does not align. And this is, I think, where... You've got to understand the trends because considering all the things we've said, you now know why French food isn't... A couple of decades ago, when I really think British food... You you know, we weren't renowned for for our British food. In fact, it's a bit of a laughing stock. Um, You know, French food was the byword, wasn't Mm -hmm. it? For great, And they were very rude about British food. (laughs) Yeah, and quite arrogant about it. And and deservedly so. Mm. You know, the best French bistros would be streets ahead of, of anything else. And now, as you say, French food is nowhere. Nowhere. There is a funny thing. I remember... Um, Which is weird. My sister, who's in the world of food as well, she said she was talking to a, one of the older French chefs in the UK. So a French chef, but who's lived in the UK all his life. And he said the key to French food in the 70s was taking the ingredient and then adding a woman's name at the end. <laughs> so, steak Diane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. Like, and on one level, you know, look, you know... You know, look, French food is obviously unbelievable and there are a whole load of kind of incredible That's things. Am- in that. amazing. I mean, it's amazing stuff. But if French food wants to be part of a, a culinary future in the, amongst British foodies... It needs to evolve. It, it, it needs to evolve and it needs yeah. to kind of find its, its mojo. I think you could say that about their wine as well, actually. Yeah, it's interesting. There's there, mm. there's definitely more challenge there, isn't there? Yeah, need need to evolve a bit because because it's got such a great history. So finally, um, to move on, and as I say, there's so much more in this research if you want to access it online. But just finally, we've gone to the international cuisine. What are people actually cooking at home when they're entertaining guests? So friends and family are coming around. Um, it's in their home. What, what's going on there, Ollie? So I think what's interesting is is that in the world of entertainment, foodies. Well, I mean, look, actually, the UK quite enjoys entertaining. I think we're, mm. you know, we quite like sociable that sort of, people. You know, sociable people. Mm. You know, the house is our, you know, is our castle. That whole idea of you know property ownership. You know, there's a whole load of kind of crazy stuff about you know why we love you know that and bringing people into the home and food is important to us. You know, actually on quite a broad level. So I think what's interesting is that people do enjoy entertaining their family. But what's really fascinating to me is the more you enjoy it 
the more likely you are to be a foodie, and therefore the more anxious you are to be about it. So the more anxious. Yes. Yeah, so the more. Really. So the oh, more. Yeah. The, yeah. I, I'm definitely that. Are yeah. you? Yes. Oh my! I love but, but, cooking. And, and, I think, I and so am I. So am I. If it so, all bombs out, I really don't care because they're but, your mates. So more gin. A chip shop. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. see, I, 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 th- I find I'm, cooking I'm for really my friends cool the real. Shit. No, I, I. Do you get flustered? No, I don't get flustered. But I would certainly say I, I think you want more, it to be right. I want it to be right, and I want it to work. Yeah, so do I. But I don't. I don't care if it doesn't. Yeah, but but I mean, just yeah. my mates. So and if it's my family, just they just do as I told. Yeah, and I. But I sort of. <laughs> I really. I. I get tremendous pleasure when I cook a meal for my son, my family, friends, and actually they love it because I think it is one of the great gifts, isn't it? And you know, with the, with that comes greater anxiety. And what's well, it's interesting, a huge gift cooking. For it somebody. is. Mm. I think it's. A, I, I think it's. A, it's an honour. That's how I look at it. But you, you're a bit, little bit freaked out by it. Well, no, I think it's it's the anxiety that precedes it. You know, thinking what you're going to do, and I think because people oh. know that I've worked in the food industry and I love They're my food, they expect something you. big. Expect it to be healthy as well. Of Come course. around your house, yeah. <laughs> but the, but the problem is, I also find that people are like, oh yeah, we. So I went out for dinner with some friends the other night, and they'd done. It was Tuesday night, and they'd done a starter soup, grilled fish, and four sides, and we're like what the hell's going on here? This is extraordinary. Like, we knew you guys were coming for dinner. And I'm like, <laughs> look, seriously, we just love being invited out. No one yeah. invites us out because they mm. think we're kind of, yeah. you know, food snobs. But I think what's funny is, is when you learn, look at the world of entertainment is that what people try to do, because again, we've looked at the recipes and what they're trying to create is they do want to impress. And actually that does bring a whole load of new things into, into consideration. And that does open up the opportunity for more different international cuisines mm. and more different ingredients and, and other stuff. But I also think if you take on board also the kind of the growth earlier in the week or in the program about, you know, gluten and, and dairy avoidance, you know, you know, we have our, the same challenge at home that chefs have, which is when people come around, you're like, oh, yeah, she's, she, she avoids gluten and he doesn't like meat. And you suddenly, you are suddenly, you know, I think we're all being pushed as well in the home environment to also now cater for our friend, friends' requirements. Yeah. Mm. And that's also a bigger challenge. You can't just rely yeah, so on the old faith. So I had somebody around uh, for Sunday lunch and there's like eight of us cooking decided to do a massive leg of lamb and a chicken, just in case anybody didn't want red meat. Um, and somebody's uh, celiac, gluten-free. So it's like, okay, do you know what the easiest thing for me? I'm just going to do the whole thing gluten-free because then it's, then it's it easy. Is, yeah. Yeah. And actually, yeah. you know, making Yorkshire puddings and stuff gluten-free, it was all fine. And we yeah. just, you know, I don't put flour in sauces anyway in particular, but, you know, made some lovely cauliflower cheese and all that sort of thing and just, just did the whole thing gluten-free and it was absolutely fine. And that was easier than trying to do a separate meal for somebody, I think. But you see, we tried to do that the other day and we suddenly were, we were like, we were, this is typical, my wife and I cooking, we're doing a dish. Like, oh, why don't we throw some biscuits in as well? Like, there was some, like we got some amaretti spare, we'll, we'll crush those up and throw them in. And we did it and we went, oh, you know, no, you can't do that. And it's like, you know, so in some ways I think we're all having to unlearn certain things. Yeah. And that's a, uh, that's a challenge. And I think this is where, you know, when you look at all of these trends and all of these things that we're dealing with, on one level, we're talking about them very much as, as business people and about people who are in the food industry. Yeah. But actually it's impacting what's happening in Britain's homes. Yes, it is. And it's impacting them because friends come around for dinner who are avoiding gluten or they're on certain diets. And that's a challenge. And I think especially when you're catering for kids. Yeah. Because you're generally not talking about a, um, a lifestyle trend. You were talking about a true food allergy and that, you know... It, that's up a notch. I mean, my nightmare is that somebody will come and their, their kid's got a nut allergy and then 
God, I'd have to look at every single ingredient of everything just to make yeah, sure. I mean, because that it's really not, increases. It's not just about anxiety. peanuts, is it? It's about it's what's in and yeah. the thought of somebody being drastically ill, you know, in your house and you're responsible. It's just quite a responsibility. It's a scary. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they also find it really hard as well because actually they they know that it's really difficult bringing them around. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you sort of, you know, I'm lucky enough not to have anyone with a major allergy in my family. But for those that do, and that's, again, you look back at the data and what's interesting is when you look at the people who are avoiding dairy, they're also avoiding gluten. And, you know, there are swathes of the population. And I, and I don't think, you know, and so it's one of those programs I think we really should do is actually try and dig into this whole world of allergies and why. Because we, we talked about we it before and it's too. why is it happening and why is it growing and mm. what's behind it? Because the health thing is the sort of, is one tip of the iceberg, but there are others in some ways. So just to end on your statistics here, um, people entertaining at home, uh, you've used the phrase dinner parties, but by that you mean, you know, inviting friends around, you know, of an evening or whatever. Um, and and, and what's, what's the difference between a non-foodie and a, and a, and a committed foodie? Well, actually, this is where I, I really enjoy our research is you put questions in, you're like, oh, we shouldn't have asked it that way. That's, that's completely messed up the research because we said the word dinner party. And basically, we in the last 12 months, the number of dinner parties that people are having is declining. And I think that's because dinner parties are considered old-fashioned. Yeah, and so, actually, it, so it might be, um, it could be a barbecue friends around, or it could be, it could be anything, couldn't it? For dinner. Yeah. And actually, this is, where, this is where research you have, to be really, you have to be really careful with. It's actually yep. use the wrong word and suddenly it, it completely skews the mm. research. Um, but we're saying here that committed foodies are saying, let's say they entertain friends uh, more than seven times in a month, about eighteen percent. So is that seven times a year, actually. Oh, seven, seven times, times a year, year. blimey. So, uh, so actually, so so eighteen percent sometimes a year. And, and interesting, you know, some people, and again, this is where you you have to look at this data. Some people aren't sociable or have to have the, the right place for entertaining. So there are lots of reasons that drive behind it. But entertainment is a sp- you know, I mean, it's a space, but, you know, if you look at non-foodies, 64% <laughs> don't entertain or entertain once a year. Yeah. And that is, that's I'm quite... not, nobody's coming around my house. <laughs> that's not what yeah, they're no, saying. But, but actually they're saying, I don't, you know, that they go to the pub. And, that, and, that's, and, not and that's, different, that's not part of our social, part of our social thing. Yeah. And they, they might go and watch the football. They might, you know, that's just not one of the things that I Food is not central. Yeah. And yeah. look, we all know within families... Christmas or major celebrations are around one person's rather than others more often than not. In our family, there's a competition about who gets to, to cook. It's kind of a bit weird. But not all families are like that. The foodie ones are, but the non-foodies are probably like, yeah, you know, no, 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 no. really happy to that. drive. Happy to drive and come yeah. to you and wherever you're based. <laughs> so just to um, finally end these uh, two programmes that are based on the Great British Chefs research, which you can access online for free, and we'll give you a link from um, the Food Talk website. Charlie, um, in terms of looking back at all this, uh, having worked in retail, that there are some real opportunities in in terms of nutritionally getting stuff right and promoting particularly plant-based but other things uh, that, that, that are coming through on this research, isn't there? There's some real opportunities if you're in food or want to do f- you know, uh, want to develop new food products. Yeah, I think there are. And and you know what? I've seen some really exciting innovation in this field over the last 12 months, certainly since January, actually, with um, retailers launching their own own brand vegan ranges. So I think it's quite an inspiring um, space right now. It, it's difficult to navigate, though, as, as, um, as a consumer, isn't it, to, to work out, particularly, say, if you've got a young family, what is nutritious and what isn't. It's still quite it complicated is, It is navigate. hard to navigate. There's, there's too many opinions and voices and ones that aren't founded in you know decent science out there so yeah it's it's a difficult space for people and is there a role for government i mean if 
I mean, there's obviously other things on their plate at the moment, which we don't even want to talk about. But is there a role for government in trying to help us to understand it better and and get the industry to label and 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 do things that are much easier for a consumer to yeah, understand? Yeah, the government you know, almost visually, actually, they're doing a lot. They're yeah. doing a lot in terms of reducing um, salt, specifically sugar at the moment, is is the real push. So they are doing a lot to make the industry. Um, make products healthier. They're also doing quite a bit on the education fronts. They do really good social marketing campaigns for kids and they've got ones for adults. Is it enough? Probably not. They probably don't have the the funding to to do it. So it, it does need to be a, a joint effort. But, you know, if, I know we've talked before about nutrition labelling and there not being enough investment behind teaching people how to read a, a nutrition label. It's just the real basics where people struggle. Yeah. Yeah. So just um, finishing on, on the research, it's it's the trends that are interesting, isn't it? And um, again, found some, some, well, some things that I really wasn't aware of or, or, or my perceptions were completely wrong. And look, the one thing I'd say is that one of the things that we try and do is our research is about increasing understanding of the world of food. And if you have got something you're really interested in and want, you know, to dig into further, we're always looking for ideas and challenges around avenues of thinking and you know when you read that it made you think this and that's how it goes so we're always open to those kinds of um, challenges because actually we are trying to genuinely understand Britain's foodies more and, and work out how to do that. And again I would state that if you are a brand if you're in food service if you've got a restaurant if you're thinking of developing new products you need to you need to just read this research it is free and it will give you a really good insight on on the gaps there are and, and, and perhaps where you should be heading so thank you um, for all your team in getting that together Ollie you're welcome welcome we really enjoy it yeah yeah it's good so you've been listening to the food talk show and as you know we're in, uh, syndicated to radio stations across the UK and further afield as well as being available on stitcher Spotify Podbean, iTunes and the podcast app on your phone. Thank you to my fellow presenter, Ollie Lloyd. Uh, Holly Shackleton will be back with us next week. Yeah, we'll make sure there's gin and fun Fo- stuff to do. To you know. Talk, you know, we can be fun again next try. week. Now we've done our yeah. data, we can, we yeah. can mess we've, around. We've sort of grown up, haven't we? We've all grown up, which is not like it, you and me. We've been grown up this week. We won't be next week. And again, um, thank you so much to Charlie Parker, uh, nutritionist. I hope you enjoyed it, Charlie. I've really enjoyed it. Thank That's you amazing. for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, and again, if you know anybody doing something groundbreaking in the food sector, please get in touch with us on Twitter at Food Talk Show. And if you want to listen to any of our hundreds of podcasts, not least the one that preceded this programme, go to foodtalk.co.uk. Have a good week. Bye.